the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Mark. Christians will come to me and ask me to embrace or to, you know, investigate this new, wonderful, powerful manifestation of God's Spirit. And one question I will always ask is, where do you see that particular manifestation of power revealed in Scripture as something attributed to God? Well, I can't find a Scripture verse on it, but, you know, but I've just experienced it. I appreciate your experience, but I don't validate miraculous powers by people's experience. Validate everything by the Word of the Lord. In today's message from Pastor Gary, you learn the importance of going to Scripture. Just because someone displays an experience of miraculous powers, you need to back everything up with the Bible. Pastor Gary explains that it can be dangerous to stray from the Word of God based off of experiences. It's important to always stay in the Word and let the Word support your experiences. When you stay in the Word of God, you stay in the truth and the light of God. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Mark, chapter 12, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. The Trinity is revealed in the Great Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It is, it is a word that is plural, but it defines a singular thing. And uh, Jesus says that that is the great command. And then he quotes, continues in Deuteronomy 6, 5, when he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Most people don't have any problem with self-love. I know that there are a lot of books that are written on, you know, loving yourself, and I just think it's nonsense. Most people already love themselves. He says, love your neighbors yourself. Again, loving God and loving others. Now, listen, (laughs) the teacher commends God. Isn't this brilliant? Well said, teacher. The man replied, you are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. You know, he with each group that came, or this individual, Jesus answers clearly and wisely, and it shuts their mouths. They have no more questions to ask him. Now, Jesus is going to turn the tables here, and he's going to test their knowledge. Next verse, verse 35. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, how is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ, the Messiah, is the son of David? 
David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Quoting what uh, David wrote in Psalm 110. And David calls himself, Jesus says, David calls himself Lord. How then can he be his son? In other words, Jesus is saying, you know, the identity of Messiah, he says to them, do you know who the identity of the Messiah really is? Because, for example, and he tests their understanding. David says that the Messiah will be the son of David, and yet he talks about Messiah as being my Lord. And so Jesus says, how can Messiah be both the son of David, in other words, a descendant of David, and also be the Lord of David? How can he be both? Because Jesus, of course, came from the line of David in terms of his entrance into the world, the seed of God through Mary, Mary being a descendant of David, but yet God being creator is Lord of David. And so David in the Psalms writes this. It sounds mysterious at the time, but Jesus is saying that he's actually articulating the the wonderful mystery of God incarnate, being God creator, he's the Lord of David, but being God in flesh, he's the son of David. And that was a messianic title that was ascribed to Jesus. Remember, the blind beggar would ask, would cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And uh, so it is a reference to Messiah. Uh, They don't even answer the question. They're probably just dumbfounded. And the next sentence says, and a large crowd listened to him with delight. You know, they're probably like, yeah, get him. I don't think Jesus' intention was, I'm going to just show you up. But I think the crowd delighted in seeing uh, that Jesus' wisdom was uh, so beautifully taught here. And so verse 38 says, As he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law, the, the scribes. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most Severely, Jesus basically says here that the teachers of the law, the scribes, they enjoy popularity, power, privilege, and they prey on people. Those kind of things that would characterize them. They enjoy popularity, power, privilege, and they prey on people. What does it mean in verse 40 that they devour widows' houses? What it means is that the teachers of the law in those days taught that the, the best way that you could show your generosity is to give offerings to your teachers. And instead of, uh, you know, charging something, they would go around and they would basically say, you, sh- you should be giving offerings to me since I'm such a wonderful teacher. And as the scribes would go around, what they would do is mostly pray on widows. They would, they would uh, pray on the people who had the least to offer and basically be robbing them of their means to survive. And Jesus is calling them on this. You devour widows' houses. You, you go around and, and you would, you, you're wrangling big gifts from people who have the least to offer. All to satisfy your appetite for power and privilege and prestige. You prey on people. You love the honor. You, you love your flowing robes and all this kind of stuff. And Jesus says, watch out for them. Watch out for them. Such men will be punished most severely. Verse 41. It says that Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. 
King James says she put in two mites, so it's sometimes referred to as the widow's mites. Uh, and by the way, mites are like a dime a dozen. You can get them in Israel for you know pennies, but you know they're two thousand year old coins that uh, are all over the place. And and so it says, calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, "I tell you the truth: this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything all she had to live on." Please, please note this. This is you know this is a very challenging scene here. Jesus is sitting watching as people are putting in their offerings, just kind of observing what people are giving. Now, you, now we need to think this way because every time when, when we receive an offering here and we give unto the Lord, we need to give as if, because it's, it is still the case, Jesus is watching what we're doing. And he's not impressed by the amount. Notice that because the wealthy people were putting on in, into the offering, it says large amounts. And this widow put in two small coins, two mites, worth a couple of pennies. So he commends her, though she put in less. So it's not like God is impressed by the larger amounts. That's not the issue here. The issue here is the motive of the heart. And the fact is what he's actually challenging us with here is that generosity is defined not by the amount, but by the sacrifice. Real generosity I mean, in in anything, but just for the meantime, let's talk about generosity towards God. But generosity towards God is not measured in the amount. It is measured proportionally in heaven by the sacrifice. I personally, when I read this, I'm personally challenged, and and I say this, you have to pray about it, and you have to weigh this. I don't say this to impose my view as much as just to express my personal conviction. I personally believe that generosity in giving to the Lord should hurt a little. Otherwise, it's not generosity. The people are giving, the rich people are giving out of their abundance. A widow who gave 100% is more generous in the eyes of God than rich people who gave, say, 50% or whatever. Now, she wasn't obligated. It wasn't that God demanded this of her. She had two coins. Could she have kept one for herself? Sure. There wasn't an obligation here. There wasn't a legal obligation that she had to give 100% of all she had to live on. Neither is there a legal obligation for us to have to give 100% or even a certain percentage. I know that the tithing principle is taught primarily in the Old Testament. I see it transferred somewhat in the New Testament, in Matthew 23, 23, where Jesus rebukes the Pharisees because they parsed out a tenth of their mint and their cumin and and their spices. And he he says, you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, like justice, mercy, and faithfulness. But he says, you should have done the latter without neglecting the former. So he doesn't throw out tithing. He still enforces the principle of tithing. But I don't think it's a percentage. I don't think we should be bound with a calculator. I think it's a matter of the heart. But I do believe when you look at a story like this, that what is really measured by God is the amount of the sacrifice in terms of how much it hurts, not the dollar amount that is actually given. And, you know, and I don't, I don't say how much it should hurt as a means of like, you know, we ought to always be cringing at, oh, I don't know how I'm going to pay my bills. Oh, I don't know how I'm going to feed the kids. You know, they, they need diapers. And I, it's not, it's just the idea of if we just give fluffy stuff, that's just, That's not generosity. There should be something in my giving, I'm convinced, 
that then translates into a greater dependency upon the Lord. And if I always give, just skim a little off the top, so then I'm just never really dependent upon the Lord, it's, it's not as generous as it otherwise could be. So he commends her here for her tremendous sacrifice, though it was much less in terms of dollar amount than other people were throwing in. Now, when we get here to chapter 13, chapter 13 is very similar to Matthew chapter 24. This whole chapter really is about the signs of the end times. I debated whether or not to even get into chapter 13, whether I should just slow things down here in chapter 12. But I decided, let's go ahead and uh, because I taught more extensively about the signs of the end times in Matthew 24, I'm not going to go as, as deep in, in Mark 13. Um, but I'm still going to list for you, Jesus is going to give us here 12 signs of the end times. And if you'll notice here in chapter 13, verse 1, it says that as he was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Now, look, what they're beholding is the magnificence of the temple and the temple court area. The temple itself was refurbished by King Herod, and he did this to ingratiate himself with the Jews. And it was a process that took about 60-some years from beginning to end. And Herod had a massive rebuilding program of the temple courtyard and the temple itself. So that by the time it was finished, and it won't even be finished until about 63 A.D., so this is about 33 A.D., they're just about halfway through the rebuilding process here and the refurbishing the temple area. But when they get here, they notice these massive stones these huge, these massive stones that were used to build the Western Wall and then ultimately the temple itself. And so as they're leaving the temple area, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Jesus says, do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down, just as Jesus said. And under Emperor Titus, the Romans come in 70 AD. They destroy the temple and uh, they push the stones down, and outside of the rabbi's tunnel today, you can see on the outside of the western wall, they've preserved a section of the ancient pavement that goes down to the time of Christ, where all or many of these stones are just still left piled up from AD 70 as a testimony to what the Romans did, that they would be reminded, let this never happen again to us. Now, since that destruction, AD 70, the temple has never been rebuilt. It's never been rebuilt because the, the Romans came overtook. Uh, there, was a, there was a great revolt that ended up with uh, some of the Jews down in Masada, and uh, there's a story behind all that. There's a lot of history involved. And then the Jews end up becoming a dispersed people, and other nations will rule uh, over Israel until 1948, when the nation of Israel once again is reestablished as a nation. And then um, since then, as part of uh, different negotiations uh, through various uh, wars and after the 1967 war, Moshe Dayan made a, an agreement with uh, the Muslims that they could maintain administration of the Temple Mount in exchange for, for peace. Uh, you know, there's always an attempt of land for peace kind of a thing. And so therefore the Jews have not had uh, the administrative rights of the Temple Mount to even be able to rebuild a temple if they wanted to, and they do want to. And in the Temple Institute today, they've already refashioned all the articles of the temple uh, and uh, in preparation for the temple to be rebuilt. And, of course, the Bible talks about how the temple will be rebuilt. Unfortunately, the temple will be rebuilt 
and then it will be occupied by the Antichrist before the second coming of Christ. And so, as, as we see here in chapter 13 of Mark, uh, they are going to ask him a question about the signs of the times, some of these very things. And it says here in verse 3, As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? Now, in Matthew's gospel, it's even more direct. The disciples ask him, tell us what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. They already have an understanding perhaps just simply revealed by the Holy Spirit, of his second coming, because it's kind of odd to ask a man who, you know, a God, the God-man who's there with you, what will be the sign of your coming when he's right there with you? So they are already predicting and understanding his second coming. And so Jesus said to them, verse 5, I'm going to read down through verse 26, verse 5, Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginnings of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them, and the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at that time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me, but he who who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter, because those will be days of distress, unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and miracles to deceive the elect, if that were possible. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. But in those days following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time... Men will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And so up to this point, Jesus basically is is giving us 12 signs of the end times. And he says here that one of the things that will happen is that there will be the introduction of false messiahs and prophets. There have always been false messiahs and prophets to some degree, but to a greater degree, just prior to his second coming, there will be people who assert themselves as being the Messiah, being the Christ. There will be false prophets as well. There will be wars. Nations will rise against nation. There will be earthquakes. There will be famine. There will be persecution of Christians. 
We're seeing it happen more and more. On a positive side, he talks about the spread of the gospel. It will, it will be preached around the world. It must first be preached to all nations, he says there in verse 10. And I think with because of the internet and because of satellites and, and because of cable and because of broadcast and all these things, we have at our disposal the, the greatest resource of advancing the gospel around the world than ever before. And then he goes on to say that there will also be betrayal and rebellion and hatred among family members, obviously distinguishing between those who love the Lord and those who don't. Even within your own family, there will be this kind of betrayal, rebellion, and hatred. There will be the the uh, revelation of the Antichrist. This is the reference in verse 14 to the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it, or literally where he... In the original language, some of your Bibles have a footnote there to express that, where he does not belong. Let the reader understand, let them, uh, let uh, those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. There will come this point when the Antichrist will take over the temple and proclaim himself to be God. That's what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians. And so this, this geopolitical, religious, uh, charismatic leader will arrive on the world scene. Perhaps he's here now unknown. Uh, but but there will be someone who purports to have peace. He will make a covenant of peace, Daniel says, with the Jews for seven years. The temple will be rebuilt. There will be the re-implementation of sacrifices. And then it says in Daniel that halfway through this seven-year period of peace, the Antichrist will reveal himself for who he really is, and then the Jews will know that they've been deceived. When that happens, they will flee to the mountains. And Jesus says, pray that your flight doesn't happen in winter. Isn't that interesting? Because if you've ever been to Jerusalem in winter, and I have, things get snarled at the least amount of snow, unparalleled distress on the earth, um, false signs and miracles. Don't believe every powerful manifestation. Test every powerful manifestation to make sure that it is of the Lord. And I say this, and some of you might think, you know, you're, you're preaching to the choir. You would be surprised how many times... Christians will come to me and ask me to embrace or to, you know, investigate this new, wonderful, powerful manifestation of God's Spirit. And one question I will always ask is, where do you see that particular manifestation of power revealed in Scripture as something attributed to God? Well, I can't find a Scripture verse on it, but, you know, but I've just experienced it. I appreciate your experience, but I don't validate miraculous powers by people's experience. We have to validate those things by the Word of God. Did Jesus teach it? Do the, did the early church practice it? And do the epistles support it? If it passes the grid of that test, then I'm all for it. But if Jesus didn't teach it, and the early church didn't practice it, and the epistles don't support it, then it might be somebody's personal experience, but I can't say it's from the Lord, because God has revealed those things through Scripture that has to be the handbook by which everything else is measured. And Jesus warns us that there will be false signs, false miracles. Be very careful. Test those things by the Word of God. There will be cataclysmic world events. That's why he's talking here about the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, stars will fall from the sky, heavenly bodies will be shaken. All those kinds of things revealed in the book of Revelation, particularly between chapter 6 and uh, 18. And uh, then, verse 26... People will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. So Jesus will return. 
Thanks for tuning in to Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Pastor Gary has been walking us through the book of Mark. More than the other gospel books, Mark seems to have been written in a way that communicates the fast-paced course of Jesus' ministry, helping us realize it was only for a short time. While the book of Matthew focused on proving Jesus as king, Mark focused on Jesus as a servant. Jesus repeatedly displayed his servant's heart through the various miracles he performed, caring for others above himself. Jesus' example of a servant is something that we should be humbled by and should follow in his footsteps by serving others. We'd like to take a step in that direction by serving you in some way. Can we be praying for you? We'd love to know what's on our listeners' hearts. If you're willing to share with us, our email address is prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. We'd love to meet you, too. Come join us this weekend at Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg. We're meeting in person as well as online, and you can find all the information you need on our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. While you're there, you'll find additional teachings from this series in Mark and other series. That's all we have time for today. Thanks for tuning in to hear Pastor Gary on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know